Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome Investment Director Catherine Young. She provides an update on China's recent growth, trade relations, and the impact of regulatory and policy changes. Catherine says the Chinese government's current focus is implementing a pragmatic policy which should maintain growth that is moderate yet robust. Catherine also reflects on critics calling China an aging society. She says there is a prioritized shift in its growth dynamics, transitioning from high quantity to high quality with an expectation of maintaining a 4.5 to 5% growth rate. The emphasis is on innovation to drive growth in strategic sectors and move beyond traditional manufacturing. This podcast was recorded on February 8th, 2024. Catherine, lovely to have some time with you. How are you? I'm well, Pamela. Very busy with the markets, but very well. How are you? I'm very well, yes. And I, I'm just, uh, we're watching and dying to ask you sort of how we should be approaching this, how investors should be looking at this. I guess I guess one of the biggest, even if we just go back a few days, the, the biggest question, uh, I think, is, you know, the expectations of many people in markets across the globe that China will stimulate more and becoming disappointed that they don't. Is that just so many people in the markets are used to massive amounts of stimulus and then we get disappointed? Take us through this. Uh, it is very much that case. So I think what we're seeing at the moment is this need to the investors reset expectations. So both in terms of what economic growth is going to be like in China, as well as market performance. And because we're not seeing that sort of big bang policy that we're used to. So for example, in 2008, you have this disappointment. So if we think back, you know, this time a year ago, we saw the reopening occur and a lot of expectations were factored in about a massive rebound that hasn't played out. The macro story wasn't great in China. And it almost seems that whilst the government's trying to take a very pragmatic approach to policy implementation, to really focus on their long-term aim of stable, moderately strong growth, investors have almost put it in the too hard basket and have been selling, back selling quite a lot um, up until the last couple of days, both from an international perspective as well as even a domestic perspective. So if we can just back up to what you said there, the, the long-term pragmatic, um, China doesn't go through election cycles in the way that many other countries do. So, so bring that long-term pragmatic view to us again. I think, I think it's just a reminder almost. Yeah, absolutely right. So when we look at the Chinese government, we don't go through these election phases or election periods. So whether it's their five-year plan, their 10-year plan, you know, aims such as being carbon neutral by 2060, those policy aims are sort of embedded into society and companies will work towards those aims. So in fact, sometimes when you look at policy direction and implementation, it can be quite easy to follow as long as you're aware of what the priorities are for the government. And again, during this period and, and very noticeable over the past several months, you've seen the government's officials and even you know more recently, really emphasize and message the need to have growth and, and their willingness to promote growth. But the disappointment has been that the policy hasn't necessarily followed through with their rhetoric. And I think that's the, the disconnect that investors are struggling with. 
And yet there has been, I mean, I guess if we look at it in, in sort of a, a slightly slower moving and longer term way, um, in, in the last week, there has been this press conference, there's been announcements that are different. I mean, this does seem to be a different uh, approach, maybe a faster moving approach from a Chinese government policy perspective. Again, markets not impressed enough at all. Um, but tell us, you know, what's what's being communicated here? This seems like a slightly different approach to come out this way and speak to sort of investors. Yeah, so we've had a recipe package being announced. We've seen a cut to the reserve requirement ratio. So, you know, earlier this month, we saw disappointment when we saw, when the PBOC or the, uh, the Chinese central bank, in fact, didn't cut interest rates or what we have in terms of the loan prime rates. But the one in right. five years was, it remained the same. And that's when the market started selling off even more. So more recently, we've seen a cut to the triple R. It's more, don't forget, a signal. More of the fiscal. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Doing things from a monetary perspective. And then fiscally, again, the reason why we're not seeing all the stimulus being thrown or, in, or injected into the economy or liquidity is a better word. It's because we're still sorting out the debt situation from the time, let's say, in 2008. And so because we're seeing the shift in terms of where China sees itself, this is why we're seeing this very much a policy that's based on the government wanting to see organic growth, not stimulated, almost artificial growth. That's very interesting and very different. And tell us about that, because we're mopping up. It's a different approach. Okay. It's very Oh, yeah, it's it's um, you can understand the rationale. Uh, and also when you take into consideration, you know, what China wants to deliver and where it wants to go from an economic powerhouse status. And what's interesting is also when you speak to the companies on the ground, their base case is that we're going to continue to kind of throw our way through from an economic perspective. And you're certainly not going to see this V-shaped recovery, uh, but they're getting on and, and, and finding other ways to become profitable or finding other Greens in terms of revenue or customers. So I think that's a really fascinating part about China at the moment in terms of the stock opportunities. But from a broader perspective, don't forget we've had the property situation. That continues to be a drag. So the authorities also don't want to see the capital markets becoming, you know, not a drag per se, but money. They want the, the capital from households to start funneling into, whether it's fixed income, equities, and this includes ETFs, by the way, not just uh, stocks. And the ETF market, I mean, we've seen record number of ETFs being launched in China, the largest number in the world last year. So it's not like it's completely dire in China. There's still a lot of capital flowing around the system, but just that sentiment is really weighing down. And the sentiment, I mean, one thing I'd love to ask is, so the idea of some of this is, is the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, as and I, and I think this is your term, they become almost like the blue chip um, companies, if you will. But as soon as you mention SOEs and investors and how people look at investing in China, you, you inevitably get this question of, you know, to what extent is it investable? As soon as you mention SOEs being in charge of sort of the new wave of investment, you just wonder if investors kind of maybe not turn off, but that's where the questions seem to be, aren't they? Yeah, but then there's a huge potential delta and opportunity. So, in, in fact, it's just been announced that potentially the SOEs as part of their KPIs or their performance 
metrics. So don't forget last year we saw metrics being put in place in terms of rewarding minority shareholders, uh, doing more buybacks, um, paying better dividends. So everything we've seen in Japan, which people have loved about the Japanese market from a corporate governance improvement perspective, many SOEs in China have been doing, but it's been totally dismissed because of this overhang of sentiment. But today it's been sort of touted that potentially these SOEs will also be assessed in terms of their market value. And if they're not suitable in terms of market value, should they be listed? So there are some like pretty full on potential requirements needed for SOEs to become better businesses and better management teams. And interestingly, PetroChina actually hit its up, um, sort of upside target today. So we haven't seen this in terms of uh, timing-wise since 2015. So we have both on the downside as well as the upside in the mainland stock market, these limits, and it hit its limit up. So just to a sense, and even the private companies, I don't know whether you read, but Jack Ma and Joe Sizer, are the founders of Alibaba. They're now was, the largest shareholders of the company. So this is, this is um, well, this seems like a good moment to sort of talk a bit about what got completely washed out from a policy perspective a couple of years ago. How, how long ago was this when the government really did that massive crackdown? It was hard on, I think, investors psychological sort of uh, approach to China, but but we're starting to see, Jack Ma's a great example, but but the overall Alibaba and companies got, that got really washed out, are they, how are they doing? So, I mean, you could argue they're fallen angels. Interesting. A lot of the e-commerce players, I mean, before you were, you know, buying these companies at just levels or, or multiples where there was very limited margin of safety and now they're trading it you know some of these consumer names in china um, and i'm i'm bundling in the e-commerce names here their multiples are lower than some of the energy companies so some of these soes we've been talking about in materials and energies they're trading at higher multiples at the moment than those well-loved names that have been very sold down you know because of foreign ownership levels and that sentiment that we've been talking about as well as perhaps some regulatory hurdles. And then in e-commerce in particular, the competitive intensity between these players is huge. So unless you really dominate a subsector within e-com, it's very hard to lose in terms of your market share to others. That's really interesting. Let's go into some of the consumer itself, the health of the consumer and, and the development of the domestic market, domestic players. Um, this has always been the goal and just, some will say it accelerated after the opening, the reopening. Um, take us there. Take us to some of the stocks, the competitive nature of the domestic market, the consumer itself. So the consumer has been a real disappointment uh, in terms of the lack of spending they've yeah. been doing, especially after the lockdown ended. So if we look at the consumer story, it's still very much intact in terms of it's, it's a high priority for the government in terms of consumption being a key driver of GDP growth, especially with the whole property situation. Uh, you know, the argument about, well, property's been heavily sold off, that's why people aren't spending, it's not the only reason. So consumers in China, they're rich in terms of the household savings rates, like 35%. So they're not indebted, like say, let's say versus um, South Korean households or Australian households. But their willingness to spend has just been sort of paused by them. Or you're, or you're seeing a pause, I should say, in their willingness. So 
at the low end in terms of the pricing curve, you are actually seeing a pickup and a nice recovery. And then in some of the very high luxury brands, you're seeing a recovery. But you're also seeing recovery in the experience. So domestic travel, yes, regional travel. I don't know whether you've noticed a pickup in tourists from mainland China in Canada. We haven't seen the same amount of capacity in terms of flights yet, but you're certainly seeing this travel aspect really starting to recover nicely. I noticed it a lot in Europe when I was in Europe um, of late, and uh, many more people traveling coming from China. Uh, it seemed, yeah, it seemed like that was back to an extent. Um, tell us about the long-term growth work uh, um, outlook. It, it does seem like things are slower. You'll hear critics say demographics in China have changed. Uh, it's now an aging society. Lots of other countries know what that's like to deal with. It tips the economy in a certain direction. Um, but that said, what should we get used to in terms of growth out of China? Or what's, what's sort of the policy aim? So it's still going to be about quality versus quantity of growth. So the big growth giant in Asia is, is going to more than likely be India. So they're going to start growing at the levels we used to see China grow at. But China's growth, let's say four and a half, five percent, they'll maintain, but it's about the quality of that growth. And so don't forget, when you look at what China's trying to do, and they are actually making a lot of inroads, by the way, they're climbing up the value chain. So instead of being the world's largest manufacturer of socks or shoes or toys, they're now exporting. I mean, especially, in fact, a very exciting area is the industrials space. Really? And exporting, yeah. So, I mean, I saw this company back in October, uh, and then the team just saw them last week. It's the world's largest forklift company. Forklift and they've company. Got, oh, yeah. I love that. And amazing. And they've now got EV forklifts. And when you look at their sales of offshore, they're growing. You're seeing companies such as um, healthcare companies. So they're competing against GE and their technology is amazing. Is this sort of and medical device on that side of things? Like x-ray machines and, and those kind of treatment machines or, or sort of, um, you know, like in surgeries that you'd see them and, and for diagnostics. And then even a company which has been in the portfolio, so the China portfolio, the Fidelity China uh, portfolio, Sinotruck. So Sinotruck now has got a huge market share, like 50% in places like Thailand, across Africa. And essentially they sell new trucks, great quality trucks, at something like a 20% discount to a second-hand truck company in these, these continents. trucks are not, these are not easy no, not EV. They've got, they could be looking at, I mean, China's really ramping up its EV technology. In fact, technology surpasses Japan and auto exports now surpass Japan and Germany. So all these sort of um, this innovation and then biotechnology, and that's the name of you. Even in the consumption space, you're seeing these consumer companies, like Chinese consumer companies, a lot of the internet companies have their domestic business and now are gaining uh, monthly average users around the world. So, I mean, the hesitation is how much you pay for these companies, right. but you can still find a lot of quality, value, and growth, and really well-run companies too. Well, this is always the question, isn't it? it it's sort of uh, the, uh, the optics of what 
Chinese companies are allowing investors to see. That is always a question mark. What has either changed there, or if you look at Chinese companies that, that are quite global, um, take us through the reporting, what investors seem to want, any movement within there? So essentially, the Chinese companies are, are leveraging off their huge supply chain. And so when people make a comparison about could could China go down the same road as Japan? So it's called Japanification. So these lost decades, because like Japan, China's seen a decline in property prices, the aging demographics, as you highlighted, deflationary issues or risk. Fortunately for China, it's seen what Japan went through. And, and again, this is why we want to continue to see positive tweaking policy in terms of stimulus to ensure we don't go through these lost periods in terms of deflation. But the Chinese currency is in a very, very different place versus where the yen was back in the 80s. And China is just such a massive powerhouse from a manufacturing perspective. So these Chinese companies, not only do they have the domestic demand, but they're trying to be more innovative and, and just gain global demand because of their prowess, both from a manufacturing perspective, the quality of these, of these, of these, of these services or goods, as well as they've got the pricing power. So it's 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 actually, as I said, you know, really unbelievable. Now you get some companies who, from a disclosure perspective, and I'm thinking one particular e-commerce company, who when they start ramping up in China, sometimes they don't like disclosing the breakdown of domestic versus foreign flows or, or, or profit. And people sort of regard this as um, they're not being fully genuine or they're not disclosing, but it is quite common during this ramp up phase because they don't want your, their com competitors to essentially know how well they're doing and then they publish it all or disclose it. So that's some of the criticism. And also we have to be mindful of, of capital allocation or, or, or CapEx to ensure that businesses that they're creating or acquiring offshore make sense. I mean, at some point, presumably the goal is to have that normalized. So if everyone is reporting, then then that's, that's a different story. And it's not just you're worried about your competitor across the street. That, that they're going to know your numbers, essentially. How far away are we, would you say? I mean, it, there's a march towards making it more normalized in terms of the disclosures. Is this correct? Yeah, and, and actually the biggest delta, again, is is potentially from a, an ESG scoring point of view, uh, China comes out on top. I mean, we're coming from a very low base, though, because there has been pretty much a lack of any kind of dis required. But if China wants to attract foreign investors and, and foreign businesses, that has to also uh, see better disclosure from the companies and from industries and, again, from policymakers as well. Fascinating. Take us back to um, some of the, well, this is sort of industrials, but more on the energy, maybe the commodity side of things. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, what powers China? There's certainly the electrification of China that's happening uh, much faster than many other parts of the world. Oil is still very much um, part of what powers the world. There's no question there. Are there investments around uh, this on both sides that are of interest to, to the fund, to Natan? Yeah, absolutely. So he's, he's had a number of uh, positions across steel, nickel, aluminium and oil. In fact, from an oil perspective, very bullish over the long term because just like everyone's obsessed with the supply demand sort of relationship when it comes to semiconductors and, and by the way 
the view from Nitin's uh, perspective is that there is an abundance of inventory when it comes to semiconductors, like really? an abundance. Oh, so yeah. all right. With the chart would be off off the chart in terms of going up. So people are so enthusiastic about this, and you know, even companies like Apple or or Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, they've seen D ratings in terms of earnings, yet the stock prices keep on going up. You can have a company that's got about 1% exposure to artificial intelligence and its share price has gone through the roof in Taiwan, for example. So he thinks that that's, you know, too much is factored into that supply demand relationship. Not enough is factored in when it comes to oil. And don't forget, he is a contrarian value investor. So very different to consensus. But he feels that even if demand remains stable for oil, you don't have the supply. It's very expensive to create new supply and also um, takes a long time in terms of the amount of barrels we need to get that oil out. So if supply is at a shortage, then the demand, no matter what it does, you still have this disconnect. And the Chinese companies are you know, tapping into oil service related companies. So the actual cargoes that move the oil or it can help with the oil rigs, et cetera. So, you know, again, this particular oil company, it's it's just one contracts in the North Sea. And then also from a, a, a political perspective, you're seeing a lot of uh, negotiations and trade and infrastructure agreements uh, relating to the Middle East and China, in particular Saudi China. I mean, it has been for decades. Uh, I don't, China has been the big buyer for, for a very long time. Um, Bringing the Belt and Road there, because that obviously speaks to the, the trade and the delivery and, and the connections. So post-COVID, uh, they started talking about it again, and it's still very much high up on their agenda. It's the way they build out soft um, status, soft power status. Again, using some of those industrial companies, it enables those industrial companies to also move into these other countries. So still very much on the agenda. You don't hear as much about it no. in the press. But it is spoken about in China and here in Hong Kong. And it's being used. I mean, much of it is built. To, to what extent is much of it built? Are there, are there more great plans or, or has, the, has the big infrastructure at this stage pretty much been built and is now in use? No, there, no, there are many, many projects going on and, and many sort of bilateral agreements that are being signed as well. Um. Or do you find in terms of that initiative and perhaps others that that investors around the world on that bilateral uh, discussion are are moving towards China um, in any new or particular way? I mean, give, give us a sense of perhaps non-North America, non-European non investors, but perhaps from the Middle East, perhaps from others. Are, are they interested in being in China in a more confident way than perhaps other investors? It feels that way. And so some of the sovereign wealth funds, uh, especially outside of the U.S., are looking to diversify their assets from, from the U.S. Uh, China is a key beneficiary. When you look at India now, so India, in terms of the bond market, became part of the, the JPM or JP Morgan Emerging Market Index. So that bodes well for them. China's got a massive fixed income market. In fact, you know, and, and Hong Kong's a great vehicle in terms of, of sort of um, the funding that goes in and out of China. But Hong Kong was one of the first markets to launch a green bond or green bonds. And again, that doesn't even get recognized so much. So 
if, for example, China wants to continue and they, they make, sort of they, they're not saying otherwise, make inroads in terms of their carbon neutral aims, they're going to need investing. And it can't just be all funding from China. And so the bond markets will act as a vehicle for this. How important was the handshake in California in the fall between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden? It was a move in the right direction. Uh, and even with the outcome of the Taiwanese elections recently, uh, whether it was the Taiwanese uh, new leader who whose tone just shifted slightly, China's tone was a lot more friendly, the US was a lot more accommodating. So that risk or the perceived risk has somewhat um, improved incrementally. But I think between the US and China, you are going to have these bouts of, of volatility because China is going to continue to climb up the value chain and, and take market share away from other global well-known brands with what I spoke about earlier in terms of tapping into the supply chain, offering products at a much bigger discount, which are still good products. Let me ask you this. We've got, we, you know, we were sort of obsessed with um, reading the headlines about the Red Sea. It's a very real uh, humanitarian disaster and the trade implications of the Red Sea being blocked, the Suez being blocked are very real. Does that, um, does that just not affect China because goods are not going through that particular well, bottleneck at this point um, for trade particularly? I mean, it's it's affecting other countries. Is it necessarily affecting China one way or the other? I think it will affect all countries, but this is again why China tries to be not completely self-sufficient, but you know, whether it's agriculture, whether it's um, technology, really trying to ensure they have the domestic capabilities or the sources um, to, you know, to provide, uh, whether it's food, commodities, or again, uh, technology prowess, such as chips that are, that are required. Uh, but I think you know, this, this whole, the, the tensions we're seeing geopolitically, I, I think it does affect everyone ultimately. Yeah, interesting. Um, when you mentioned agriculture and sort of the self-sufficiency, that discussion, um, are there investment opportunities there? Yeah, I'm actually doing a lot of work with our analysts at the moment because it's a fascinating area and an area that you're seeing companies themselves focusing on, especially maybe as you see the policy shift towards property, what other parts of the economy are you seeing very positive policy in terms of really trying to see these areas grow? So whether it's biotech, whether it's agriculture, whether it's just all-out innovation. Uh, so the way in which you do agriculture, the, the mechanisms about farming, in fact, just recently, again, the government announced a, a program in terms of support from an agricultural perspective. So interesting. So is, is there anything cool going on in, in agriculture? I'm, I'm thinking of like all of the innovative ways of, of trying to get more out of a piece of land or a hill, or a, a, is there anything particular to watch there? All sorts of going, all sorts of things going on, you know, about weeds and, and how we create the weeds and the best use of farmlands. And in fact, at the moment, when you look at the portfolio and, you, you know, when we look about global trade and whether it's geopolitical tensions, et cetera, or just outright valuations, we're seeing the trimming of a lot of outbound Chinese names with a real focus now on 
inbound or, or, or true domestic Chinese companies. And whether that's in, you know, there's no particular sector, it's where the opportunity set is. You know, a lot of consumer names fall into this category. You could also see some of the, you know, again, the industrial companies within China, uh, e-commerce companies. So because valuations are looking so attractive and these companies are still quality in terms of their potential earnings growth, um, there are some opportunities that we're, we're closely looking at or ventured into. Okay. Tell us a little bit about, let's go into the property discussion. You've mentioned it a couple of times, the shift away. We know that. What will be left? What What is um, being essentially managed right now by, by policymakers, by the government? Do, I mean, they're not soft landing it completely, but they're obviously managing it. What, what are we going to roughly see on the other side? So, you know, remember Nissan's thesis about property. So he said, you know, even back in 2015, we're seeing the beginning of a huge property bubble and it will be the world's biggest property bubble. And it has been the world's biggest property bubble. So a hard one to solve. Uh, but he's, he's met his thesis um, over the years has been that the state-owned enterprises will consolidate in terms of the sector, that you would see defaults with the private developers who had weak balance sheets, who weren't delivering the projects. And, and don't forget, most of the market in, in China is the primary market. So you buy off the plan and then you receive your property versus, let's say, in Canada, where you would sell your house to someone. Uh, in yeah. China, the secondary market is beginning to evolve, but it's still very much dominated by the primary market. So you've seen these private developers get into trouble or you know, not delivering these projects. The state-owned developers overtake the projects, the projects get delivered. So the state-owned enterprises, you know, they're, they're going to return some attractive growth, but it's not going to be stellar earnings growth, like a, a big growth company. But their dividend yield is very, very attractive. And so that sort of um, total return or blue chipness of these companies um, looks good. But his thesis actually hasn't played out in the stock market. So property is property names. So the big state owned enterprises that he owns have lagged. But funnily enough, when we look at property, let's say sales are down 30%. The sales for the state owned enterprises in the portfolio are in fact up. But because they happen to be property names, uh, again, because of the weak sentiment towards China, especially towards the property market, they've been somewhat uh, neglected or we've seen a stock price decline. But overall, we do need to see sentiment improve with property so that consumers feel more confident about spending. And, and on a regular basis, you do see positive tweaks policy-wise. The local governments, there's lots of discussion about the local governments bearing the brunt of some of the property, well, the air coming out of the bubble, I guess, is, is one way of looking at it. Um, and, and some of them are in, in real trouble in terms of debt. Just take us through what, again, sort of investors need to know about those comments, those headlines. Yeah, but uh, on the other end of the spectrum, there are local governments who are doing incredibly well. So China is such a big country and we've got so many provinces and and, and cities and towns and such a large population that I think, again, it's that resetting of expectations. China doesn't just equate to one movement up or down anymore. There are many different sort of um, parts of the story or pieces to the puzzle. So the local governments that are doing well are being positioned as the poster childs for the, the ones that are, are seeing more challenges. Uh, but again, this is why it's, 
property is a hard one. We do have this oversupply. Now that will take years to play out, especially with urbanization, having peaked, the demographic profile, as you mentioned. But in general, even from a pragmatic perspective, the regulators have, have, have kind of handled the situation pretty well, considering how big the bubble, in fact, was. And, and again, with a very, very long-term view and idea that the, the middle class needs to continue to have opportunities to grow, just sort of take the temperature of things for us there. How, how is that? That's obviously a massive priority. It is, and that's why the health of the labor market is really, really key. Because one of the reasons people aren't spending is because they don't know whether they're going to retain their job, just like other places around the world. And so that, you know, that's something we also need to see, just um, stability in the labor market, a sentiment improving from a consumer perspective. The property market, I mean, it, it's going to be a drag in terms of economic growth for, for a while. And we shouldn't think that the situation will automatically get recovered because there's nothing that really can just automatically turn it around. Um, and again, that's where the disappointment, right? Because what else can you do? It's time. Uh, but, you know, if we start seeing the sentiment improve in China in terms of consumption, then the companies will start to allocate more in terms of, of capex and the cycle will begin to turn again. Very interesting. So within uh, the ability to do pick stocks, to do some, some stock picking, Valuations are, are pretty blown out across a lot of the different industries. T tell us about the opportunity there. In fact, it's, big, it's a challenge because everything's so cheap. Um, and you only have, you know, this is talked about. Yeah, he, he's sort of like a kid in a candy store. He feels like that. And he's only got a certain amount of money. So he has to spend wisely in terms of his assortment of candy that he buys. So you just, mind, I mean, this we're familiar with this. Yes, yes. Okay. Yes. Which one are you? Um, he's just being, you know, in these markets and, and the performance versus other China managers last year was, was really strong because of his approach. But it, he just always maintains is about finding good businesses run by good and honest management teams at a good price. So having a margin of safety. And that process, whether you're in a, a bull market, a bear market, a sideways market, um, if it's if it's robust, should work well for for clients or for investors and shareholders. Anything else, just just as we close, to to know about messaging um, from Xi Jinping, from the leader of China, from the leadership broadly of China about the financial markets, uh, about the stimulus story, because we're going to continue to watch this going forward and. Um, just sort of take us back to what you think has been said and what might be built on and, I don't know, certain corrections within. Uh, what should we look for sort of from comments from leadership going forward? I think they want to have a much better coordinated approach. So not just regulators coming out with an announcement and then the announcement sort of doesn't make sense and they retract it. We've seen that a few times, even over the past year. And so don't make that regulatory decision to begin with. So be more thoughtful in terms of that coordinated approach. It's unlikely you'll see this you know, massive stimulus because it goes against what they've been saying in terms of this is our long-term growth aim. How are we going to get there? Especially as we're going through a shift uh, in terms of, of the growth makeup of China. So I hate to say this, you know, there isn't one particular catalyst that's going to see the market rally. 
it's definitely ratings and earnings. And in fact, China's poised to see a positive re-rating uh, or re-ratings across the board, maybe in areas such as industrial exporters, as I spoke about. That, that's a, a key candidate for having maybe better than the rest of the market or other sectors in terms of, of re-ratings. But it does come back to that patience and also remembering that China, viewing it in the lens that we view other markets, sometimes you can't do that. You, you have to uh, take on board in terms of the Chinese way of doing things. And that it, you know, again, there's there's no upside to China seeing their economy fold or them not being the second or indeed the number one economy in the world. And they do have such a, a large manufacturing capability, uh, a population that's got this wealth behind them and that wealth is growing, even though we've seen this dip in property prices. So I think, you know, that long-term growth story and, and driven by the consumer, driven by the domestic investor, or, or i.e. the evolution of the Chinese capital markets is key. And I think from a stock picker's perspective this year, and we're about to have Chinese New Year or the Lunar New Year, and it's the year of the dragon. It's, it's might not be roaring ahead, but it's certainly not the doom and gloom you often read about when you, you know, people talk about China. Think, um, you know, our, our head of research, she said the cutest thing to me today. She said, um, I'm using someone else's quote, but Chinese companies are like tea bags. You don't know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. And I thought that just summed the market. Perfectly. So I think now we're going to have a cup of tea, Pamela, and what happens. Well, I, I might invite you to I'll, I'll, I'll certainly quote you and uh, and uh, your research analyst as well. Well, Catherine Young, um, joining us from Hong Kong, thank you always for your time. Uh, we are always delighted to hear your perspective. It just clarifies so many different things. A very happy Chinese New Year to you and to your family, and uh, we hope to see you soon. Thanks, Pamela. Take care. All the best. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.